looking at the core beliefs of Christianity is something that is worthy of our time. It really is because it will help us to deepen our roots into Jesus Christ, which is what we discover in Colossians chapter 2. And these are our church-wide life verses for the year to allow ourselves to grow down into him. So whenever we have the opportunity to think about and to teach on and to discover core beliefs, this is a really good thing. And for those wondering about Christianity, like, is this for me? And do I want to give my life to this? Well, thinking about core beliefs is a great way to discover and then to make a choice. So far, we have looked at several core beliefs of Christianity. We started by looking at theology proper, and we took two weeks to think about the doctrine of God, God himself. Who is he? And how can we be properly related to him? After that, we talked about soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. How can we step into a forever friendship with God? And that's soteriology. We then talked about bibliology, or the doctrine of the Bible, God's gift to us, his words to us so that we could understand how he wants us to live and behave. And then we talked about Christology, which is the doctrine of Jesus himself, his life, death, and resurrection. And then we looked at ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And we stepped into that powerful chapter in Acts chapter 2, where the church launches and begins. And we discover that this group of people, which is the word ecclesia, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the church began to have great impact in its immediate area, and then it began to spread. And we're still part of ecclesiology today. And then last week, we talked about anthropology and hamartiology, which is the study of humanity and sin, and how God provided a solution for the sin problem in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, we want to take a look at the next core belief, the seventh in our time together so far. And we're going to take a break from all of the ologies, all of these words, and look at something more practical, yet core to Christianity and how we live theology, which I think is important for us to understand. Theology is something to know. And so we look at it and we wrestle with words and passages and meaning and we can know some things about st the study of God and how he operates. But theology is also something to live practically. And so today we want to look at a core belief that helps us really practice good theology. The core belief that we will talk about today is compassion, which we could say is really more of a core behavior that flows from the belief that all people 
are made in the image of God, and that's what we talked about last week with our study of anthropology. All people matter to God because they image him. They are made in the image of God. So here's our big idea for today. God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. Okay, this is what he wants for us. God wants all followers to show compassion to people in need and those who apprentice with Jesus, those who claim to be disciples, who love him and follow him. Well, we really should be compassionate individuals, not just in our thinking, but in our actions. And that's part of compassion, and that will come out in our conversation. I want to share two observations about compassion before we look at some biblical texts. Here's the first thought. I believe this is how we can effectively serve the world today with compassionate activity. Followers of Jesus doing this. And I feel I could make an argument that this is the greatest way for Christians to have impact in the world today through our compassionate actions in a culture that is increasingly polarized, compassionate acts have the ability to cut through all of the harsh rhetoric that exists. It just has that kind of ability. So I believe compassionate activity is probably the greatest thing we can engage in in order to help the world see the person of Christ. Now, some would argue with me and say, it's not compassionate activity that's the most important thing. It's truth. God's truth. And people need to know it and see it and believe it. Truth is more important than anything. And a good argument could be made for that. I would say we need both. We need truth plus compassion. Or think about it this way. We need truth delivered in compassionate ways, and we need compassionate activities that stand on the truth and the faithfulness of God's word. All that being said, I think compassionate activity, this is a great way to let other people know about Jesus in our context. And then here's the second observation. Compassion is not traditional as we think about trying to live the way of Jesus with compassionate activities, it's really not a traditional thing at all. I'm working my way through a book right now by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. Nancy is a professor of apologetics, a great scholar, and she makes the salient point that Christianity really isn't traditional. So if you are looking for a non-traditional approach to life, Christianity could be your very thing. And she makes this argument that Christianity is not traditional because from the very beginning, it stood against the traditions of its day, especially in relationship to the treatment of humans. And so let's wrestle with that a little bit as we think about compassionate activity and the need for it and it's not really traditional. Christianity isn't traditional because it stands against the traditions 
of its day. It did that in antiquity, and I think it can still do that today, especially in relationship to the treatment of humanity. So the Greco-Roman world, and that's the context of the time when Jesus was here on earth. The Greco-Roman world was a male-dominated culture that had a very low view of women, had a low view of marriage, had a low view of the family, and really an overall low view of humanity. In addition to that, Philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and others recommended infanticide as part of their world, which is the killing of unwanted babies as a legitimate state policy. Like, we should do this. And it was a very common practice in Roman culture. The time when Jesus was here on earth instructing his followers to be compassionate in their activity. In a report by NBC News dated May 2011, and according to a study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, infanticide was common throughout the Roman Empire and other parts of the ancient world. A 1973 survey of human societies determined that 80% of them at some time in the past or more modern times practice this intentional killing of babies. I share that with you because into this context, a low view of women, a low view of children and marriage and family, into this context, the early church went against the traditions of the day and acted with compassion by adopting children and rescuing them from being abandoned. Nancy Percy states it this way, in the ancient world, Christians were distinctive for their humanitarian efforts, taking care of babies and slaves, of widows and orphans, of the sick and elderly, of the unwanted and abandoned. When we think about compassionate activity, we need to understand that Christianity from the very beginning stood against the traditions of its day that really had a low view of life. What's interesting about compassion is that it really does more than see and feel, which is more of empathy to see and feel like, oh, someone has a problem or injustice has been done and I see it and I feel it. Compassion takes a step beyond that and it actually means to suffer with and that's how we can define it. It's more than just seeing and feeling. Compassion means to suffer with the individual, to get involved in the mess, to get involved in their pain, and to take action to do something about it. As we think about this core belief, and again, we could call it a core behavior of Christianity, here's how I want to walk through this today. So here's the outline. I want to think about God, and we'll start there, and consider how he is full of compassion. 
And we talked a little bit about that during theology proper, but we want to unpack a little bit more of that today. And then we want to look at the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And during Old Testament times, God worked through them to be a witness to the world. And we will see that they were called to compassion. And God gave them very specific instructions on how to do that that fit their context. And we'll look at a passage that describes this. And then we want to think about Jesus and certainly how he was a model of compassion. But we're going to look at a passage where he's actually arguing somewhat with religious people who probably thought they were compassionate, but they weren't. And he points that out. Like, you're doing good things. You have some spiritual disciplines in place, but you need to add compassionate activity to that to round out your behavior and your witness in the world. So we'll look at Jesus as a model of compassion. And then what about believers today? Because we are still the church. And so is there a call for us to act in compassionate ways, and there is. And so we will look at one verse that kind of rolls out for us, this ongoing call to suffer with people, not just to think about it, not just to see it, not just to hope stuff gets better, but to actually get involved and suffer with other individuals. Let's begin with God and how he is full of compassion. To do that, I want you to take your Bible or your device and join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at chapter 9, just a great chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9. Before we read, let me give you some background on what's happening here. The book of Nehemiah is all about repairing and restoring the city of Jerusalem, and rebuilding the walls around the city so there would be safety and security for the residents. Well, God works through Nehemiah as a leader and many other individuals and people who live there to accomplish that task in a very short period of time. It's kind of shocking how fast they were able to rebuild, and you can read all about this in the book of Nehemiah. When we get to this great chapter, what we discover here is that the people are coming before God after all of the building and activity and cleaning and repairing and restoring. They're coming to God and confessing their sin. And they're also recalling how God has worked in and through them and how he has truly been compassionate. Here we go, Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll begin in verse 16. But they... Our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Like you have a lot of love, God, you're abounding in it. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 19, because of your great, you say it with me, compassion. Yeah. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness 
is the middle of verse 27. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Middle of verse 28. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Verse 31. But in your great mercy, and in the construction of the sentence, the word mercy here is the same Hebrew word for compassion. So in your great mercy or in your great compassion, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What we see here, in Nehemiah chapter 9, and this is the only passage we'll look at that describes the compassion of God. There are several others throughout the Old and New Testament, but we'll focus on this. And what we discover here is God's people recalled the compassion of God because they knew it and they experienced it. It was true for them. The Hebrew word used here is raham and means compassion or mercy, and this section from Nehemiah chapter 9 is a wonderful reminder for all readers, including us today, that God truly is full of compassion, and he abounds in it, and he does it over and over and over again. He does not desert us or leave us to what we deserve, but he continues to offer compassion again and again. That's God just full. He's full of compassion. What about God's people, the nation of Israel? Well, what we see in reading the Old Testament is that God worked through the nation of Israel and asked them to be a testimony to the world of the mighty acts of God, including his compassion. I want you to turn back with me to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. This is not a book we spend a lot of time in, but we get a picture here of the specific way or ways that God wanted his people to be a testimony to the world. Do this, and you'll be acting with compassion, and the world will know about it. So here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you are harvesting your crops. All right, so this is God giving them specific instruction now. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. No, leave it. Leave it, even though you might want it so that you have enough for you or you can sell it and make money. No, leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. God goes on to say, when you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go over the bows or the branches twice. Don't keep hitting them so more olives fall. No, leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, 
orphans, and widows. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. It is clear that compassion for them as a nation, for the needy, is something that God instructed them to do in very practical ways. It fit their context. They were an agrarian society. And so as you're gathering, as you're harvesting, don't take it all, but leave some of it there so that the foreigners, the widows, the orphans, and these are pictures of groups that were marginalized in their particular culture so that they have something to get from what you have done. Leave it for them, God's people, were to be a witness to the world in this way. Don't take it all, but leave some. And God was specific. Here's how you do that. Here's how you can be compassionate to others. Well, what about Jesus? I think we would all assume he was a compassionate person, and he was. We know this to be true about him, but I think there's a great passage in Matthew chapter 23, where we find him arguing with some religious people, and he says some interesting things. So join me in the gospel of Matthew chapter 23. I will begin with verse 23. Here's Jesus talking, and he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. But you do this. You ignore the more important aspects of the law. And Jesus rolls it out here. Here's what you kind of ignore. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And these are three key words, and we'll come back to them in a little bit. So you do one thing that's good, but you kind of ignore these other things. You should tithe, yes, do that, but do not neglect the more important things. You blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel instead. So do you see the word mercy in verse 23? It comes from the Greek word eleos, which has the meaning of pity and compassion, and mercy. Now, there is quite a bit that we could say about this particular passage here in Matthew chapter 23. There's much that we could unpack. Jesus is kind of going after the religious people of his day by saying, you tithe, or you give a tenth of your income and what belongs to you back to God so that he can accomplish his purposes in the world. You do that, and that's a great thing. And by the way, keep on doing that. That's the encouragement we find from Jesus here. You should give 10% of what you have back to God. Keep doing that. But you're missing out on other aspects and other spiritual disciplines that would be really good for you and your witness in the world like compassion. He even called them blind and says, here's what you do. You work really hard at straining out the gnats and not swallowing them, 
but you swallow a camel instead, which is kind of a funny comment from Jesus. He's using some hyperbole here because both gnats and camels in their culture were considered unclean. And their crowd, especially the religious leaders, would never touch or want either one of them. And Jesus is saying, you work really hard at straining out the gnat, this small little thing, and instead you end up swallowing a big, gigantic camel. The point of all of this that Jesus is making is you've lost focus. You've lost focus on, back to verse 23, justice mercy or compassionate activity and faith or faithfulness to truth and faithfulness to the word of God. Jesus emphasized with this particular argument, tithe, give, be generous, yes, to all of that, but you also need compassionate activity. Okay, one final part of this. What about our ongoing call to compassion? Is this something that the church of Jesus Christ needs to engage in today? Do we have a responsibility as apprentices to do more than see and feel bad for people? Do we have a call to suffer with, to get involved? And I believe that we do. And I would encourage you to turn to James chapter 1, the very last verse of the first chapter is verse 27. I've read this before, I've taught on this before, but I believe it presents a very clear picture of the ongoing call that we have as a church to suffer with. Here's verse 27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father. Now, let me just pause there and say, if you have ever wondered what actually is religion, how do you describe it? How do you define it? Well, here it is. It means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So, pure religion. Caring for marginalized individuals. And, oh, by the way, add to that being faithful to the word of God and to God himself by refusing to let the world corrupt you. I think there are two questions for me that fall out of James 1.27. The first question is, what good is the church? <laughs> I think that's a fair question to ask, right? Like, what good are we? What good are we? And then the second question is, what's the greatest need of the hour? As we think about everything that's happening in our culture and in our context, what's the greatest need of the hour? So what good is the church? And what's the greatest need of the hour? James helps us answer those two questions with three key words. The words are justice compassion or mercy, but we'll use the word compassion today, and faithfulness. So justice, compassion, and faithfulness, and I know it can be hard to peel apart justice from compassion, 
just think of justice as the doing arm of compassion. Like I want to suffer with, so here's how I will now do justice. It's where we begin to act. And all three of these things are needed so that the church can be good in its context. And we can fulfill the greatest need of the hour in terms of loving people into a genuine relationship with God. Justice, compassion, and faithfulness, we need all three. And I think that's what James 1.27 tells us. From a pastor, author, and teacher that I respect and follow named John Tyson, who pastors a church in New York City, he took these three words and made visuals out of them and talked about how if we only have two, it will be kind of a problem. And we might need to add the third component to it. That's the argument that he makes. So I want to share these visuals with you because sometimes visuals really help us understand. So think about it this way. Compassion and faithfulness. If we have those two things, without justice, it leads to a deficient pietism that is tone deaf to suffering and yields no action on behalf of the hurting and the oppressed. So compassion and faithfulness, they're really good, but if we don't add justice to that, the doing arm, well, we might act in very pious ways, very high religious ways, but we'll be a little tone deaf, and that's not a good thing. What about this? Justice and faithfulness without compassion leads to harsh activism that quickly becomes mean-spirited and critical. And I will say this may be one of the greatest challenges in Christianity today, that there is justice and there's truth behind that. But often it becomes really harsh and critical, like you don't and you're not and you don't fulfill this, and we get really critical of other Christ followers and other people who don't know anything about Jesus at all. And that becomes harsh activism. It's not a good thing. What about this? Compassion and justice without faithfulness can lead to secular humanism where God is excluded and there is not a divine standard to use in evaluating actions and ideas. So this is where there's a lot of activity, but no God and no faithfulness to God and his word. And that may look really good on the surface, but underneath that is not truth, sustaining and evaluating actions and ideas. Now, when all three of these things, right, justice, compassion, and faithfulness, when all three of them come together, when compassion and justice are joined together and defined by faithfulness, well, this leads to true kingdom discipleship, allowing us to live out our salvation and develop a spirituality that can meet cultural needs. Now, I would say to you that all three of these things merging together, it does equal kingdom discipleship, and this is the greatest need of the hour, that those who don't know anything about Jesus 
need from those who are apprenticing with him. People who are combining justice and compassion and faithfulness because this is true discipleship and it's what makes a church great. So what good is a church? It's probably only as good as the combination of what we see here in James 1.27, justice, compassion, and faithfulness. And when that comes together, there is discipleship, and we meet the greatest need of the hour around us. So these things alone, they're good, they're okay, but it's better when they merge. I just have one takeaway for us to consider. And I would encourage you to fill in these blanks so that you can think about the sentence throughout the week. Pray for a compassionate moment and be prepared to have your time disrupted. Okay? Pray for a compassionate moment. Will you do that? And then allow the schedule to be altered. Will you pray for that? over the next few days and then just seize the opportunities that God gives to you to then suffer with whatever that compassionate opportunity may look like for you. And can I just say that compassionate activity rarely fits a schedule. It doesn't fit. It's not like we can say, okay, I'm going to work on justice and compassion and faithfulness. I want to put all these things together so that I can be a really strong follower of Jesus and answer the greatest need of the hour. And on Monday from 9 to 9.15, that's when I'll do that. (laughs) Right? It's not going to happen that way. Compassionate activity is often very disruptive and should cause schedules to be changed And for us to say no to some really valuable things in order to live out what we find here in James 1.27 and many other passages, including our scripture reading for today, that calls us to care for those who are marginalized. The greatest need of the hour is for the church of Jesus Christ to say, I will act with justice and compassion, and I'll do that standing on the word of God, being faithful to him. So pray for a compassionate moment and be prepared to have your time disrupted. And can I also say that compassionate activity usually begins at home. And let me define home. Could be your actual house, but it could also be where you work and where you go to school. That there's all kinds of marginalized people there that need us to move away from the schedule and from accomplishing and achieving and going and doing so that we can suffer with people in meaningful ways. Sometimes I think we often see it's a little prettier or more attractive to go over there and to be compassionate. Let me travel somewhere where there's great need and devastating issues. And God does indeed call some people to do that. And if God does that for you, you should follow and be obedient to that. And God will use you in great ways. 
But just know, as we talk about compassionate activity and the greatest need of the hour, it's probably right in front of you. So pray for it. Seize what God delivers to you and allow your schedule to be disrupted. Back to the big idea. God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. May God give us the courage and the strength to put justice, compassion, and faithfulness together this week as we apprentice with Jesus. Father, we're so thankful for a little bit of time today to look at all of these different passages that talk about what you want for us and one of the great needs of the hour, and that's compassionate activity. So help us as a church to engage and help us to look at what's right in front of us in our homes, where we live, work, and play, and help us to allow our schedules to be disruptive, maybe even in significant ways, so that we can indeed suffer with the people around us. Help us to engage with you this week at that level. Not just learning and knowing and gaining more knowledge, that's great, but to practice theology, to practice the doctrine of God, who was a compassionate God. And the nation of Israel was compassionate in their context. Help us to apply that as well. Jesus modeled compassion for us and asked us to focus on things that matter. And there's an ongoing call for the church to practice pure and undefiled religion. So help us to do that. And as we respond to you now and sing and come to the Lord's table, God, use this time to shape us and to help us walk out of here ready to do whatever it is that you plant on our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to encourage you to grab your communion elements right now. You should have picked that up when you walked into the room. If not, while we sing, our ushers will be in the aisles, and you can pick up those elements there. And then I want you to stand. Can you do that? Holding your communion elements. We're going to sing a little bit. And then after we sing about our holy God, I'll come back and we'll partake together and then keep responding. So I want to invite you now to step into this moment of worship.
sing holy, 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 holy. All the saints adore, casting down.
On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together, remembering the great sacrifice of Jesus. Part of that meal, Jesus also held up a cup and said, this is my blood which will be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together, remembering the great sacrifice of Jesus. Father, the sacrifice of Jesus is something that we celebrate now. And we say thank you. And we remember what he has done for us. He is worthy. So worthy of everything we can say and pray and give to him. As we continue to respond to you now, help us to look up to you. We thank you for this time to remember. We ask it in the worthy name of Jesus.